Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that as we spend this time together that you would minister to us. So many things going on in the world around us help us to be men and women that are submitted to you, that your work and your will was being done in each of our lives. Build us up, Lord, as we study what is contained here, that we would hear from you and understand the things we each need to personally. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we had just finished talking about um, the bottomless pit being opened and these locust-like creatures emerging and how they have this king over them known as Abaddon and uh, his name in Greek is Apollyon. <coughs> so lots of discussion afterwards regarding all of that and uh, some of the particulars uh, that uh, are unfolding and may unfold and will unfold uh, as we see those things happening. Uh, then in verse 12, the statement was made, one woe is past, behold, still two more woes are coming after these things, which, you know, the gravity of that is, you know, pretty shocking when you consider uh, that when this started, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So uh, pretty heavy circumstances, to say the least, uh, coming in these passages. So you come into verse 13, and uh, I just want to make reference again to we're going to reach that seventh trumpet and the debate that is in place regarding is that the last trump of God, and, and I insist that it's not, that the last trump of God is when he calls the church up into heaven with him, but we'll examine some things as we move forward here. Verse 13, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Uh, this is, again, the idea that uh, the saints are in prayer. Uh, the, the, the voice that is uh, heard um, could well be thought of as the prayer of God's people playing a role uh, in all of this. So we um, so often do not consider how effective and how much impact prayer has. Uh, even when we can connect the dots, well, you know, sometimes we don't uh, really uh, take the gravity that we should uh, regarding prayer. Uh, Chuck Smith um, uh, wrote a, a whole series. Uh, there's a, a Calvary Basics series. A lot of them are online now as PDFs. So you don't even have to purchase them. I recommend buying them. They're little booklets. They're easy to read. Um, they cover specific subjects very effectively. Just go through the scripture and compile you know, all the things. The effective prayer life is one of them. And he makes the point that the scripture uh, shows us that prayer is actually an offensive weapon that you can attack with prayer and the work of the enemy, uh, his strongholds, uh, the places and people's hearts and minds that have been held by uh, Satan. You can destroy the work of Satan. He talks about it as 
long-range artillery rather than even being, you know, hand-to-hand combat. You know, when you think about conversation, getting into a debate with someone, that would be wit matched with wit, you know, skill matched with skill, whereas prayer can reach to places uh, you wouldn't imagine. Um, He gives the illustration of a woman, uh, I've shared this before, but uh, she was a Korean and had been adopted as a uh, an infant. Um, her parents had had her smuggled out of North Korea, and uh, she was adopted by a Christian family. And you know, in her adult life, came to be at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, and um, she took it upon herself to become much more serious about prayer. And in the midst of becoming more serious, uh, she came to Chuck saying that she had started in prayer having this number uh, running through her brain. And it was very long. Uh, And, uh, you know, at, at first she dismissed it and then she became more serious about it to the point where she brings it to her pastor and says, you know, am I crazy? Like I'm praying and this just keeps growing, you know, in, in clarity and intensity. And um, as I recall, while she's relaying this, somebody says, well, that's that's an international phone number that that you are, you know, are laying out there. Long story short, uh, she ends up sometime later calling that number and uh it's her uncle in North Korea. You know, the Lord revealed that to her in prayer. And then that is uh, where she really gets all the pieces put together about how her family were persecuted Christians in North Korea. And they were having this child and they had delivered the child, apparently, I think, in secrecy and then smuggled the child out of the country with the prayers Upon her that she would go to a Christian family and that she would become born again. They were, you know, praying for this little child. And here she is as an adult in her 30s, becoming more serious about prayer. You know, here as we're moving through and we see the prayers uh, symbolized by the smoke that comes with the uh, incense off from the altar and out of the censer that the angel has, and now this voice. Uh, from the altar of God, when the church is persecuted and the prayers intensify, things happen. The the Lord allows for us right now to be persecuted the way we are. And it does have a purifying effect. People leave the church. Others that are in the church get more serious. Those that have drifted away from the faith come back. It's a very effective process the Lord uses through difficulties and challenges and trials. So now the voice comes from the four horns, the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound in the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. We've seen one quarter of the world's population already wiped out. And now we're seeing an additional third of that remaining 
number wiped out. Uh, One billion people lost in this process. Again, it's just going to be horrific events that are taking place on planet Earth. The Euphrates has been a landmark uh, of ancient Babylon, the Euphrates River. It was the boundary of Israel's land as fully promised by God in Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 through 21. It was also the border of the old Roman Empire. It was as far as they extended, which will be revived under the Antichrist. A lot of firsts took place there. Uh, We see... uh, it being described in the description of Eden. So original sin starts there. First world government under Nimrod begins there. First dictatorship. I mean, it is a start and finish to a lot of things in the scripture. It will be interesting to see these things become more and more significant as uh, time goes by. (laughs) So now the number of the army of horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. So now this release uh, that is described of the four angels bound in the river Euphrates, uh, some try to uh, build this as uh, these are actually like, good angels, um, you know, servants of the Lord, possible. Um, I think that the death that follows indicates that they are, in fact, from hell, and uh, they have very wicked intentions. Uh, You see uh, God speaking to Lucifer in his presence about Job, and he comes in as an angel as a son of God, and his intentions are evil. And God allows him uh, to go and uh, carry out his will against Job. We see also uh, that there is that occasion where Ahab and Jehoshaphat are going to go to war. And Jehoshaphat, being righteous, wants to inquire of the Lord. Ahab has his false prophets who tell him whatever He wants them to say. And uh, Jehoshaphat recognizes that they aren't truly speaking on behalf of God. So he requests that the righteous prophet Micaiah come and speak. And essentially Micaiah says of Ahab, you're going to be killed on the battlefield. There's a long interchange that goes on in the discussion where he mocks the king uh, quite profoundly. But the summary is he tells him you're going to be killed on the battlefield. And the false prophets are angry, and uh, they essentially say, you know, when the Spirit of God left me, which direction did it go? And uh, Micaiah says, well, there was, I'm paraphrasing all of this, there was an encounter with angels in front of the Lord regarding how they were going to deceive Ahab and lure him into battle so that he would uh, be killed, and one of the angels stood up because all the other angels were saying, we, we don't know how we would do that. How could we possibly lure 
one of the kings of Israel into his death. And another angel in their midst stood up and said, oh, I can do that. And when the question was raised, Micaiah gives us the insight about how could that possibly be done. The angel says, oh, I'll lie to him. I just can't see God's ministers lying. Yet they are angels. Okay, so we see the angels traveling like we talked about after the study last week, traveling in and out of the presence of the Lord. And here these being described as four angels prepared for this very hour, and the result is massive death. I suspect, I suspect that we're talking about fallen angels. They've been bound in the earth, in the Euphrates River, for this time, and now they're being released. This verse 16, the number of the army of the horsemen, 200 million. I heard the number of them. This army is greater than anything uh, mankind has ever seen. We have never seen it. And, and, you know, there's some discussion about, uh, oh, well, you know, the horsemen and, you know, the armies of the world don't even have horsemen anymore. Well, interestingly enough, the term is the cavalry. Okay. We have mounted cavalry and we have the airborne cavalry here in our nation, and many nations have similar things. So it could be referring to those that come as the cavalry um, in whatever form and method they do. It could also be that they are horsemen. You know, I uh, think that it was uh, uh, it was one of the generals, I think it was MacArthur, that uh, th they were talking about the, the different elements in war and... Uh, he said, I have uh, no idea uh, what weapons will be used in World War III. But I know what weapons will be used in World War IV. And, you know, people sort of walked away. Some understood. Others wondered. And what he was saying is World War IV will be so bad <laughs> that the war that's fought after that, we will revert to, you know, bows and arrows and sticks and stones and clubs and, you know, it will be reduced to a primitive form of warfare. And given the mayhem that's gone on up to this point, it may be that the mechanized world uh, is reduced to, you know, horsemen and this type of battle. However it is, you can trust the scripture, you know, mechanized cavalry. Uh, as we have today, the armored cavalry, the airborne cavalry of helicopters and such, uh, you know, maybe something like that, or we may be reduced to some primitive sense of warfare that causes it to be that there are this many horsemen engaged. Um, interestingly enough, 1965, uh, China uh, proclaimed that they had in their cavalry armed troops uh, numbering, excuse me, uh, 200 million. You know, there are people that say there's no army in the world. Uh, it was probably propaganda by the Chinese government. Uh, but the point is they do have the ability to arm that many of their citizens and conscript them into warfare. So, you know, no need to mock what's written here. Scripture records it, and we'll see how it 
plays out. Verse 17, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, those who sat on them had breastplates of, and I should have said this, <laughs> part of the discussion about are these literal horsemen or is this some kind of mechanized cavalry, now listen to this sort of strange, grotesque army that is described. And, you know, is this John seeing something of modern warfare? And, you know, his bizarre description is the fact that it is this strange thing that he couldn't possibly fathom or understand. Um, you know, you consider what it must have been like uh, for some of these if they had visions of today. Uh, you know, they, they, they have had um, sociological studies uh, taking people from very primitive settings, um, you know, just jungle-type atmospheres of hunting, fishing, and gathering, uh, and put them into just cities. You know, you take someone who's never experienced this, did, did, knew little of civilization, you, you, you've now brought them to a city, you've brought them to an airport, you've flown them to New York, and you've got them in Times Square. Okay, literally many of these people have psychotic breaks because what they are experiencing is way beyond their ability to process uh, the stimulation is overwhelming for them. It's possible that what John embarks on, and, and especially verses 17 through 19, uh, may have been just the overwhelmed understanding of seeing these things. Thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like heads of lions. Out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone. And these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths and their power in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Um, I watched a, a um, Discovery Channel uh, presentation <coughs> of, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen video footage of artillery. So, you know, you got a big cannon, howitzer, uh, it, you know, it's towed behind a vehicle, it's put in place. Uh, you know, usually there's a three man team on the fire squad uh, who work on the load and the firing of this weapon, right? Well, the Germans have developed a uh, tracked vehicle that is a howitzer artillery piece that auto loads. So the ammunition stored inside the compartment um, fires, I forget how many rounds a minute, but you know that big cannon you see our government using, boom, it goes off, rains down. Um, the problem with that is that within seconds, your enemy knows where that artillery piece is because of the trajectory and they can put fire back on you and destroy your artillery. So the Germans develop this piece of equipment that it's a tracked vehicle, has the howitzer cannon on it, but it auto-loads. So they can fire one after another. And their firing system works in such a way 
that they'll use two or three of these at the same time and they can lay down a pattern where they destroy an entire field of artillery or whatever they want to and in seconds they move and how it works is they fire the first rounds at near vertical so those shots go off and have huge long trajectory and then the second shots are slightly lower and the third shots lower and lower and lower still so that all the artillery lands at near simultaneous time so the entire location that they're looking to target the entire location that they're looking to target just blows up basically all at once and by the time the shells the first shells land they've already lowered and moved they've gone to another location what would it be like to see something that could belch out fire and brimstone and rain down death in such a way you know it'd be beyond you know to someone who's never seen gunpowder you know let alone you know is the description of these colors you know their insignia their flag their i mean you know it's it's hard to really understand you can read through and and i tend to just sort of leave it alone but at the same time, understand that, uh, you know, John is seeing something that's, you know, still now, even in our future. So, you know, to what degree is he going to be capable of understanding it? You know, in, in their mouths and in their tails, you know, front and the rear, this serpent-like thing is crazy to consider what he was trying to interpret. The end result is this. Released... From the river Euphrates, at the timing of God, brings massive amount of death. How is that all going to unfold? Well, as I insist, we'll be watching from the presence of the Lord. And when it does unfold, we'll all go, ah, see? <laughs> there. Now we understand what it all pertains to in this process. So, in their tails and in their having their heads and with them, they do harm. So... This uh, very uh, interesting thing. There, there are some commentators who insist that this isn't human at all. This is a demonic thing, and that this is how this all unfolds. That's quite possible, also. You know, we don't have to try and and make it, you know, something that's you know merely human and simple for us to understand. It very well could be unearthly. Uh, verse twenty. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, and this is such a condemnation, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons, idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, which, interestingly enough, this reference to sorceries is drug use. The, the term is pharmakia. It's where we get the word uh, pharmaceutical and pharmacist from. And, uh, you know, there are other locations where sorcery is used in the scripture, even in the book of Revelation, where it implies the sort of magical and mystical. This does not. It, it is specifically talking about 
trying to achieve a spiritual sense through the use of drugs. You know, we, we uh, look back at the 60s. Um, you know, a lot of people are not aware, unless you were really into that hippie movement and ingrained in that, um, we, we interpret it from an outside experience. There, there was a thought in the hippie movement that marijuana was going to be the source of world peace. Strange as that is for us to consider. And the, the push of the hippies was to get enough people high all at once that it would spiritually burst into the rest of the culture and produce a world peace. That movement grew until they actually organized Woodstock with the mindset that that's what they were going to do. They were all going to get together. They were going to get enough people high all at the same time, and it was going to spontaneously generate worldwide peace. What they will not tell you about Woodstock is that within the first hour, two murders occurred. There were a series of rapes, and there were countless robberies, armed robberies and thefts that had gone on on the grounds. You know, oh yeah, we're going to produce worldwide peace when we're all pursuing nothing more than the epitome of our sinfulness. Uh, world has a very strange process in considering. Now go a step further, right? <clears throat> Take for instance what Philippians says: "Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication make your requests made known to God." That, right, the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Are we anxious for things? Are we in need of things? Are we depressed about things? I add that together because Proverbs tells us that anxiety in the heart of a person produces depression. Okay, so go to Christ. He'll provide you with peace which will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The world wants peace so bad that last year it spent $69 billion on antidepressants and anti-anxieties. $69 billion. That's more than $31,000 a minute that Americans spent on trying to find peace through chemicals. The spiritual relationship we can have with Jesus Christ that produces peace the world is looking for through drugs. Behavioral modification drugs. Sorcery. So for all this destruction and mayhem and horrible things that are going on, and you read and think, oh, they didn't repent of their idolatry. Well, how strange, because, you know, I mean, America isn't really, you know, engaged in idol worship. Notice that the first two that are listed are gold and silver. Right? We are a nation that is obsessed with money and materialism. We do have an idol, and it is our money and our possessions. And the thought that you know sorcery is going to be right there present in it. Read the list again. As you see, they didn't stop their worship of demons, idols, gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see, hear, nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Sounds like Woodstock. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Seriously. I mean, here, here you are that, you know, you've got all of these crazy supernatural things going on all around them, and they will not repent. They, they, they're going to continue on in their sin. It's tragic. With that, I interpret the way God stretches these things out, again, as him inviting repentance. He's letting the problem continue on. He's letting the problem continue on. You know, I had a circumstance years ago where a family was asking me to pray. One of their loved ones you know, was professing to be a Christian, but he was living as a hypocrite. wasn't real. And the family is very concerned about it. And we finally began to pray that the Lord would do anything it took to bring them to repentance, whatever was necessary, that the Lord would bring them to repentance. And uh, we were all startled when the diagnosis of cancer came. And they immediately got right with the Lord. But then the years stretched on and they faltered away again. The illness intensified and they returned to the Lord again. And that's how it went for four years until we all got right down to the end and they were so close to the Lord. There was no question for anybody that this person had fully surrendered their life to Christ and they went home to be with the Lord. They were not healed of the cancer. I can say with a certainty, I will be with them in the presence of the Lord. The Lord, in my opinion, took his time allowing that person to go through some of the most strenuous circumstances in order to bring them to the place where that person knew and everyone else around them knew they've got an unbroken relationship with the Lord. They, you know, not, I'm not implying that you can lose your salvation or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, we can. How many times have we read in the scripture where it says, you know, you, you can be self-deceived? You can think you're in a place that you're not. Boy, when it was over and, and we sent them on to be with the Lord, they, we all knew we, they were truly moving on to be with the Lord. Yeah, here I recognize a similar patience as God allows the strenuous, arduous circumstances to, to develop and continue. Why? He wants repentance. You know, We read this and go, how in the world could they still be worshiping demons? How in the world could they still be worshiping idols? How in the world could they still be getting high and committing sexual immorality and stealing things from one another? This is crazy. God wants them to repent, so he allows the time to go on. Revelation 10, uh, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. I wish I knew whether this was Jesus or not. You know, there's there's lots of debates on both sides of this. Is this a mighty angel or is this Jesus himself? Uh, there's good reason for discussion on both sides of that. A couple of references, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, we read, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. 
and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. So specifically describing this time of what is referred to as Jacob's trouble, the great trouble, the tribulation, we're told Michael will be a defender of God's people. So maybe we're getting a description of that. A little more possibility, a little later in Daniel chapter 12, at verse 6, it says, And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How, shall, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard a man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, who he held up his right hand, and in his left hand, to heaven he swore to him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time, a three and a half years, and when the power of the holy people has become completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Again, potentially, this is Michael the Archangel. No need to argue. <laughs> I, I think that it's important that we uh, just let the scripture speak and if it's clear, it's clear. If it's not, it's not. Uh, could be Jesus. Could be Michael. Could be some great angel that we're unaware of. Um, in verse 2 of Revelation chapter 10, he had a little book open in his hand, not to imply that it's little in substance or little in meaning. It's small in size. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, you'll remember that when John first saw the scroll with the seals that were on it, we talked about how that potentially is the title deed to the earth. Uh, there are repeated passages in the scripture where uh, this conversation about the ownership of the the land, the earth, and the seas. God is the owner, possessor of all things. And this is sort of a description here, that the angel having the book in his hand is declaring, if, if this is God or seems to more be an angel, claiming ownership of land and sea. You know, this book that he holds in his hands it gives the rightful ownership to, you know, all of the land and all of the sea is, is sort of what's being painted out for us here. Cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. We have such a privilege here in this building. There is a lion that lives in the building less than a half mile away. And in the summer months, in the evening, you can hear that thing roar. And if you are alone and you are outside and you hear that thing roar in the dark, it will send shivers down your spine. You know, for a millisecond, you have to think, I really hope he's inside. I hope that some tragic error has not occurred and he is, you know, where there's nothing between me and him. And that distance, he rattles the air with his voice. No exaggeration. It's really intimidating. I'm, I'm blessed 
by the fact that he's right there and it's that constant reminder because this is a description of God's power and God's majesty. Our king, lion, tribe of Judah, roaring, cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. We see in the book of Psalm a great description. You might want to make note right there of Psalm 29 verses 3 through 9. I'll read it to you where it says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. Um, it could mean it echoes. It's more the idea of if you've been near raging water, rapids, white water, and it's so deafening, the idea that when God raises his voice, it exceeds that. So his voice is over the waters. The glory uh, or the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian, like young wild ox, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. It's the idea of there's, there's not a gentility to that. It's like it's so thunderous that it, it will almost cause like, you know, if they were about to go in labor, it would just cause birth. Uh, at once uh, to occur and strips the forest bare and his temple everyone says glory um, no power attributed to myself at all but we had just started this church early on I guess we've been going for a couple years and I was doing a Bible study one night and was talking about the voice of the Lord and the power of the Lord and the thunder and the Lord's voice as thunder. And equating it to if you if you could command thunder, you know, how intimidating would it be? You know, if you could say you say a word like thunder and have it occur. I did that and it went off. It was a thunderstorm. And and you should have seen the faces in the room. And I had to go through this great process of like, guys, no, 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 no. I mean, if that was supernatural, I took it as coincidence. I didn't have any delusion. But, you know, it was, you know, if it was orchestrated by the Lord, then it's to make the point of his power. You know, if, if you can command and have such a thing occur, God speaks, and we I think we've all probably experienced thunderstorms where it rattles everything. And, and that's what's being said here, back to that idea of foot on the earth, foot in the water, you know, claiming land and sea as his own. And when he speaks, the power rattles the place where nobody dares stand up and says, like, prove it, you know. You know, the, you know, stand up with the, the authoritative book in the hand and make the proclamation mine. You know, shake the place so hard, nobody goes, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know. Now think about where we are. All of these horrific events taking place, the occupants of earth may be thinking, like, has God lost control? 
You know, is everything just, is this nature just unwound? You know, God is demonstrating, no, I'm the authority. I'm the one who's making these things take place. I'm the one who has orchestrated all of this. When you hear God's voice in the midst of events such as this, as intimidating as it may be, there's an assurance in the process that he's still got his hand on the wheel. When the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. And it's astonishing to me that at this point, there's so many commentators that break loose and try to explain what the seven thunders said. We just heard that it's sealed up and you can't possibly know. It's so weird that when the scripture reveals something, people then take that and say, well, you couldn't possibly know what that's. And then they go through all this great explanation to make it that you can't know. And then when the scripture's silent on something, they go, well, now let me explain that to you. And they go off on great lengths to you know explain this. It tells you where they're at. It tells you that they're a false teacher when they behave like that. Uh, Chuck Smith, I, I, I guess I'll explain two parts. One, he, I've heard him say in person, you know, he's with the Lord now, passed away a few years ago, but I heard him say in person many times, speak on the things the Bible speaks about, you know, be silent on the things the Bible is silent on. And uh, he particularly goes into explanation about no man will know the hour nor the day, right? He was faithful every year when we were together at pastor's conference. He would say, I just don't know how the Lord could wait one more year. You look around at everything that's going on. I, I, I just live like the Lord is coming back at any moment. But he was careful to say, but we can't predict and I have had two conversations with people that say, I don't have anything to do with Calvary Chapel because Chuck Smith predicted when Jesus was coming back. He was so adamant about it's not possible. And the overarching theme of you only speak on the things that the scripture speaks on and you remain silent on the things. I talk about things from speculation. He never would. You know, I compile things in the scripture, you know, uh, about sexual immorality and drunkenness and different things that he, he wouldn't even touch. Why? Because the scripture's silent on them. He wouldn't be specific. Speaking generalizations, not specifically. That's discipline. That's maturity. I'm, I'm getting there, <laughs> you know, over time. If we see the Bible... Like this, you know, you, you think about false teachers, Jim Jones, you know, Guyana, a thousand people dead, drank that poisoned Kool-Aid and passed away. You know, David Koresh, uh, Waco, Texas, you know, speaking on things the scripture was silent about as though they were God's prophet. Anytime somebody starts doing that, just close your book, pack your stuff up and walk out the door because you know that they're wrong. Uh, verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up 
his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it. Um, there's some speculation that this must be Jesus. It must be God. I, I got some problems with that, but must be Jesus, must be God. Why? Because Jesus taught us, don't swear by anything else. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by, uh, because why? You can't, you know, don't swear by the throne of God. Don't swear by, you know, I swear on a stack of Bibles. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He does, if this is he himself, he does have the authority to swear by these things. Because they're his. He's swearing by himself. He's letting his yes be yes and his no be no. So here he raised his hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the seed and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. So we've seen the delay inviting repentance. Now, no more delay. Notice uh, as a sort of confirmation uh, foot on the land, foot on the sea. Now he's swearing by the fact of the one who made the land and made the sea. You know, go back to the seven seals being broken and John mourning. No one could read the scroll. Why? Title deed to the earth. Now the one who's made the heavens and the earth is saying no more delay. We're going to finish this thing. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he was about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Okay, so I just want to touch on the mystery. Uh, you know, there's uh, all of these people that want to act like they're the ones that know the mystery. You know, like these false prophets I described just a minute ago. They, they've got all the insight. They've got the special knowledge. Uh, there's there's a bunch of them that are rising up right now. I would I would warn you specifically to stay away from Jonathan Kahn. Okay, a lot of people caught up in him. <coughs> um, read uh, his book Harbinger and Harbinger Two, and have perused his latest publication. Uh, he makes claims uh, of being God's prophet. That always makes me nervous when somebody. You know, prophesy on behalf of God. Speak what the Lord has revealed to you. Uh, study the scriptures and share with us the things you find in the scriptures. To stand up and claim to be the prophet. That's always disturbing when somebody does that. He also does what we have referred to for centuries as replacement theology. Meaning, where the scripture refers to Israel, uh, you substitute the church. Right, the Gentile church into those passages of Scripture. That's especially dangerous. Okay, do it this way. What applies to Israel very often applies to the church. Okay, because we are grafted into Israel, as Paul said. Right, when branches were broken off and we were grafted in that which is unnatural Gentiles being part of the mystery were brought into the promises of God we'll look at a few passages here in regard to that but we were brought in okay not replaced God didn't do away with the vine he didn't do away with the branches he even talked about the fact that we shouldn't speak arrogantly against those branches because we were grafted in, could easily be removed, and the natural branches of Israel be grafted back in. So we get that warning 
from Paul. So Jonathan Kahn uh, teaches uh, replacement theology. Uh, a number of his prophecies have not come true along the way. So really interesting stuff in other areas that he talks about, makes parallels uh, regarding the founding fathers and this nation, and some pretty interesting, sometimes neat stuff. But then other stuff is wildly off base. So be cautious of uh, these. The servants and the prophets, uh, they wrote the scripture, right? Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration, saw Jesus in his glory, right? Moses and Elijah with him. Jesus said, don't tell the others about this yet. Then when he writes his epistles, he describes the glory that he saw. But he said, we have something that is more sure than that experience we had in seeing the glory of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, the word of God, the more sure word of prophecy. Right? The word of God is what we want to hold to. The mystery, not like we think of as mystery, something that you couldn't possibly know. I don't know how they did that. You know, what is that? It's like a magic trick. That's our sense of mystery, something that's unknowable. Mystery in the scripture was something that was spoken of but was kept from understanding until it was revealed. How about a few of these? The ultimate conversion of the Jewish people is called a mystery in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Maybe you recognize this one. God's purpose for the church is called a mystery in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11. The bringing in of the fullness of the Gentile is called a mystery in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. You get a sense of what a biblical mystery is something that was revealed. The living presence of Jesus in the believer is called the mystery of God. Colossians chapter 1, 27 through 2, 3. Jesus in us, right? Difficult to understand. Yet we know the scripture says it, so we accept it, that Jesus lives inside us. The gospel itself is called the mystery of Christ. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. So, not, as I described those things to you, none of those things that I described were you, hopefully, you weren't sitting there going, yeah, I don't understand that at all, <laughs> right? The scripture has revealed things about each one of those subjects to you that you're like, yeah, I, it's a great mystery, but I, I do have a biblical sense of what those things mean. So all of that to say, the mystery that's being spoken of here is not something unknown. I'll give you an example. I don't mean to dwell on David Koresh, uh, Waco, Texas, Branch Davidian, all of that, but uh, an acquaintance of mine from high school uh, was actually his drummer uh, for his worship team there. And David Bouchard was from Bangor. He and I went to Bangor High School together. Uh, so I have, over the years, I've had this sort of fixation with that whole situation and what went on there. David Koresh may have actually been schizophrenic. Um, he was in Israel um, there on his own, and there was some kind of cosmic anomaly that occurred near the International Space Station 
that was widely reported at the time. Uh, the astronauts on board reported these different things that they experienced. David Koresh took that as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, apocalypse coming to Earth. And he was God's prophet. And he developed in those days the vision of how he was going to die in this fiery death. Okay, So that develops over time until, in my opinion, he ultimately <clears throat> accomplished that himself. Um, you know, I understand, I really do understand uh, the government's involvement with the whole process and the CS gas that was pumped into the building and the tragedy that was the death of all of those people. <laughs> Excuse me, there, I, I get all of that. Within this discussion, what I'm trying to say is <clears throat> David Koresh <clears throat> was Vernon Howell, by the, the way. He changed his own name to David Koresh, named himself uh, for the sake of Branch Davidian, David Koresh. Uh, he was declaring knowledge of the mysteries of God and declaring himself the prophet who was capable of interpreting those things, especially for his followers. You start following that frame of thinking and you end up in places that are very dangerous. God has revealed to us the things we need to know about his mysteries. And where he seals them up, we plainly read. They're sealed up just like we did moments ago. So moving on, trying to wrap up this chapter, verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands in the sea and on the earth. So you got to go retrieve this book for yourself. I think there's a very plain explanation uh, to these verses uh, as we read them. Verse 9, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey uh, to your mouth. Um, I don't think that there's uh, any difficulty in understanding that interpretation. I think that the uh, illustration is very thinly veiled. Um, you read the Word of God, and very often you go, Oh, I love that passage. That is so wonderful and it ministers to me so much and then even moments later you're having to live it out and you go wow this is way more difficult <laughs> to live than it was to read okay taking it in is easy it's sweet at times putting it to work living it out can be very very challenging I think that what John is showing us is just that. Taking it in, sweet as honey in your mouth. Digesting it, make it part of your person. You know, easy to read the book of Revelation. It's going to be hell on earth to live through it. The bitterness involved, the intensity of what's described here. So I don't think it's difficult to understand what's implied there. Then I took a little book out of the angel's hand. I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. When I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. He said to me, you must prophesy again about my people's nations, tongues, and king. About many people's nations, tongues, and kings. I think that that's actually the greater part of the digesting, the difficulty, the bitterness 
of, of what is there. Because to go out and speak on behalf of the Lord and say the things that need to be said uh, can be really difficult, really challenging. Um, I, um, I, I guess it's pretty deep and pretty personal and might open up greater discussion that we can have uh, afterwards. I'll, I'll read this verse, 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tradition, that, uh, excuse me, I said tradition, tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. As we take in the word of God and experience the comfort that comes from the word of God, we then have the greater responsibility to minister to that, that to other people to share those things and encourage people and strengthen people with those things. Our trials are not in vain. What we go through in difficulty is meant for the purpose of building up the church. And that's really where we need to be. I've shared before, um, you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are often, you know, a thing that people get really wound up about. And uh, many years ago now, <clears throat> late 90s, uh, I was studying the gifts of the Spirit, and the Lord told me as I was studying that he was going to give me the gift of prophecy. And uh, I did not understand understand what that meant, so I spent time praying, and the Lord revealed to me <clears throat> two things. That one, to have the gift of prophecy meant that you would speak about things before they took place, but it also meant that you would speak forth on behalf of God. So the easiest way to prophesy is to know the word of God. And then as someone is in need of the word of God, to have the guts to go and say what needs to be said. So, okay, I understood that from the Lord. And then the Lord said, okay, now there are a few more rules about if I speak to you, you need to take the time to hear very accurately what I'm saying. Because if it is, in fact, you're going to go speak on my behalf, when you say whatever you say, it must be accurate. It cannot be that you just got a general sense and then you went and spoke and you added whatever you wanted to and you interpreted it however you wanted to, it needs to be that you are speaking on my behalf, not your own self. So he drills that point home with me very adamantly. And once I come to that understanding that, okay, got to speak very accurately, then he said, lastly, then you have to be obedient to go speak. So if I've spoken to you, you got to take time to hear very accurately. Then, once you've heard very accurately, you can't shy away from going and speaking. And I, I went through a great process there. 
to understand, okay, yeah, okay, I'm committed to that. I will do that. He said, good. Now I want you to go call this person and share this message with them. And the message was overwhelming. And I literally ran away from the message. <clears throat> Wasn't going to share with them. And he pressured me throughout the following hour or so until I gave in and said, fine, I will call them and do that. I called them up, delivered the message very accurately, and was astonished to watch that unfold in their life over the next 24 hours. And, and it was huge. They, they, they were, I mean, they were removed from the church. They, they were in trouble with the law. They, I mean, I had no idea what was going on in their life. And the Lord sent me, he actually sent me to them to try and rescue them from the circumstances so that they would get out of them before they got themselves in trouble. And they refused it. And their whole life collapsed on them in that moment. Remarkable experience. Uh, the, the sweetness of what is easily taken in can become bitter. But understand this. It's sweet from God's point of experience. He's, you know, he's reaching out. He's trying to, you know, all of these embittered things, these horrible things, these terrifying things that are occurring one more time, right? He's trying to get these people to repent. So even if they don't, he can, it's not like Pilate washing his hands. Like I'm, I'm not guilty. You know, it's literally him Walking away from the moment going, I really did everything I could. I was trying to get these people to, to leave their bitterness, leave their sin, come and follow me. And so, you know, the, the discipline, the correction, the harshness of his wrath being poured out. We, we witness it. We experience it in all oh, the pain and the agony and the, the horror and torture of the whole thing. Really, we can become disheartened until, you know, you, you read later. And as these things are unfolding, all of the occupants of heaven will say repeatedly, good and righteous are your judgments. If, if we'll embrace the concept that taking God's word in and delivering it to the world that's in need of it, regardless of how they receive it, is fulfilling. It is sweet. It is good. Uh, even if it causes us pain, even if we walk away going, I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> the Lord is blessed in our obedience. The Lord is blessed that the message was delivered and, and he knows that you know I, I, I extended my hand to those people, to that person, to that situation, trying to bring them into salvation. What a, what a gracious and blessed thing the Lord does. So, I just want, I want to read 2 Corinthians. We'll close with this. I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 again. Hopefully I won't stumble through it as much as I did the first time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. 
what we've experienced, and the way he's worked in us, we need to be faithful to deliver it to others. So does that make sense? Great. Well, we'll pray and then pick up at chapter 11 next week.